Good evening. It's lovely to see a room full of smiling faces and you've all come wearing coats and warm jumpers which is great too because it is a bit chilly up here I'm thinking. My name is Catherine Favell. I look after the community outreach branch of the National Library and hosting events like this is one of the perks of my job. As we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. I thank their elders past and present for caring for this wonderful land that we're now privileged to call home and that we're now privileged to work on. I'm very delighted that you've joined us this evening to hear Robin Cadwallader discuss her debut novel, The Anchoress, with a good friend of the library's, Genevieve Jacobs. Way back in January... I received a phone call from Biff Ward, who happens to be sitting in the front row tonight. <laughs> and Biff asked me two questions. She said, Catherine, do you know Robin Cadwallader? And I replied, no. She said, have you heard about her new novel, The Anchoress? And I embarrassingly had to say, no. <laughs> I'm very glad, though, that Biff phoned me and told me that we needed to get in touch with Robin and we needed to host an event tonight because I think The Anchoress is a marvellous book and if you haven't read it, I hope that by the end of this evening you'll be racing downstairs to read it too and I hope you'll all agree with me. What Biff didn't know, though, when she called was that I was at that time, just at that moment, alert to all things medieval. We'd found out that we were going to be hosting the incredible Rothschild prayer book and that it was arriving in May and we had to have some wonderfully medieval events programs to go along with it. And I really didn't think we'd want to be dressing up and doing jousting on the lawns as just happened across the way on the weekend. So it was a very timely phone call. And if you haven't seen the prayer book, it's on display in our treasures gallery with some of the library's medieval treasures, including my favourite, which is a tiny, tiny little piece of parchment from the 10th century that also happens to be the oldest item in the library's collections. <coughs> it's great tonight to be celebrating a new Australian novel that's already achieving international success. The Anchoress has just been published in the US and it's had an extraordinary journey to publication, which I hope we'll hear more about tonight. It's Robin's first novel, but she's published numerous poems, prize-winning short stories, reviews and a non-fiction book based on her PhD thesis concerning attitudes to virginity and female agency in the Middle Ages. You can see she was laying the groundwork for this novel. <laughs> Robin's lectured in English literature at Flinders University, teaching a range of topics but specialising in medieval literature and creative writing, and she now lives just across the border in Murren Bateman, so we can claim her as one of our own. Robin will be in conversation tonight with Genevieve Jacobs and I know you will all know Genevieve's voice. She <laughs> shares the stories of our region every morning on 666 ABC and it's always a pleasure to welcome her to the library too. So please join me in welcoming Robin and Genevieve. <laughs> And ladies and gentlemen, hello and good evening. I'm very delighted to be here too. I was absolutely thrilled to receive the request from the National Library to host this discussion on the anchoress. In some ways, I suppose, the action in this novel, if indeed we do call it action, takes place a long way from here, but perhaps in another sense, not so much. The novel features Sarah, a teenage girl, the daughter of a, a prosperous medieval cloth merchant who's lost both her mother and her sister, and decides with a genuine calling to become an enclosed religious, an anchoress, someone who is nailed into her cell, able to speak only to her confessor 
and with women from her village who seek her counsel and prayer. But you'll note that on the front cover of the book there is a swallow. And that has a number of echoes and allusions through the book because Sarah's spirit can soar and plunge like the swallow's does. It can fly into joy, into despair. And among other things, the anchoress reminds us that medieval people sought the ecstasy as well as the purity of union with the divine. It was something that was fundamental to their lives, a search for those who devoted themselves to it, this unmediated union with the Godhead, something that we find extraordinarily difficult to grapple with today, Mm. something that's very foreign to our 20th century, 21st century Western culture. As you'll hear, the novel's also the result of many years of fascination and research, but the anchoress is far from a simple historical novel. It's a novel of the heart as well as the mind. Robin, welcome. Lovely to have you with me. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Let's talk about this idea of an anchoress, which does seem as far removed from us as the moon. Tell me about how you came across this notion yourself and and what it means. Well, um, I I was actually um, researching my PhD, uh, which was the story of... St Margaret of Antioch, who, who gets a, um, has a cameo in the, in the novel. And uh, I was... Actually, what I was doing was researching dragons and uh, looking at the relationship between the dragon and the hero. And when I came across this woman who burst out the back of a dragon, she was swallowed by the dragon, burst out his back, uh, and proclaimed herself a hero, I thought, yep. This is what I want to talk about. This is what I want to read about. So I I read more about St Margaret and that was the focus of my PhD. Uh, But along the way, I discovered that the story of St Margaret was written down and bound in a a book of stories and devotions for these women called um, anchoresses. And I had never heard of an anchoress. So I investigated and I found out that they were women who chose to be enclosed, um, as Genevieve said, chose to be enclosed in a small cell, usually adjoining a village church, and to stay there permanently so they would they would commit to stay there for the rest of their lives. And I, my first reaction was, oh, this is, this is really awful. This is uh, a really unhealthy thing to do. Uh, who would deny themselves so much. And I read more and read more. I was really fascinated with what would motivate these women. And the more I read, the more I recognised the cultural setting they were in, the kinds of beliefs they had. And I began to realise that it's actually a very... actually an arrogant thing to just decide that from... Uh, from my 21st century point of view, that, that to decide that it was wrong for them to do that. So um, I read some more, thought some more, and that's where I began to understand and to, to try to get into the mind of one of these women and what she would be, what her aims would be, what her uh, motivations would be in being there in the first place and what choices she had in her life. Uh, and from there I moved into... I was interested in what, what would the experience be? Four walls, uh, tiny windows with curtains on, um, the door nailed shut, 
no real light apart from, from a, a lamp and a very small window covered in horn. Uh, very limited um, sensory situation. Uh, what would that experience be for her? And that, that's where that's where it all came about. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting word, isn't it? Because there's the literal meaning of being an anchoress, but I also thought about the idea of a life of contemplative prayer being an anchor, a still centre. And that's something that underlies millennia of practice in many religious traditions. Yes, and, yes. you know, in fact, we were just saying a moment ago before we came on stage, there are enclosed Carmelite nuns in Red Hill. This is a tradition that, that endures yes. in a slightly different form. But nonetheless, it's, it's grounded in religious practice. Yes. Mm. Oh, yes. And it's, it's um, you know, it is a, a very clear commitment to, to deny the world to enable enable the, the anchoress or the anchorite, there were men as well, but to, to enable the, the anchoress to um, be focused on God alone and to, you know, let go of the, the distractions and the, and the demands of the world outside to be, you know, totally committed to God. Mm. Uh, so it's a, yeah, it's, it's and, and for Sarah in the novel, that's a very real... It's a real calling. It's something that she quite genuinely wants to do. Although, Robin, I was immediately struck reading the book by the fact that this is, in fact, really quite a sociable world. In fact, there are (laughs) a lot more people in the anchoress's world than one might imagine. So explain to me how her life worked and who who saw her and dealt with her. Well, she had two maids. Uh, uh, I should say the situation that I um, describe in, in the novel is based on... A, a, a document called the Ankara which is the rule of life, that was provided for anchoresses, and it is uh, you can act, you can buy it in a translation, and it is the size of a novel, so it's a substantial piece of writing, and it it describes uh, tell, tells the women how they should behave, uh, guidelines for how they should live their lives, but it also describes the anchor hold itself, and so. Everything that's in the novel is is gleaned from there, and uh, the anchoress has um, uh, two maids who look after her her needs, her food, and um, you know cooking, cleaning. Uh, but the maids stay outside; they have a little cell next to the anchoress, uh, and she has a confessor who comes to visit her once a week, hopefully, and women in the village would come to visit. And in the novel, there's a few other people who, who drop in as well without necessarily being invited. Um, so she has... But she does have... Because she one of her uh, duties is to counsel people, she has quite a few um, women who come regularly to seek counsel or to just ask her to pray for them and and I think it's interesting that the, the choices of these women, the kinds of the questions that they ask and the needs that they have are uh, not necessarily a narrow view of what counsel would be. And, uh, and Sarah has to discover a little bit about the kind of the realities of village life and how she can meet the needs of those women.
Mm. In fact, she, she's called upon to give counsel in a number of situations, which as a 17-year-old who's chosen yes. to enclose yes. herself, you find it really difficult to understand how she could possibly do that, but that's, yes. that's the nature of the religious life. It was also interesting, Robin, that, that the intention wasn't for her to waste herself away. There are numbers of kind people who want to make sure that she has enough to eat and that she's warm and that she's dry and that she's healthy enough, for example, to menstruate, that she's not starving yes. herself. It's, it's not about expecting her to be enclosed in a way that is absolutely grim by its very nature. People actually want her to be well and engaged. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. They do. Um, she doesn't necessarily want herself to be well and engaged. At no, all and, and, and the rule doesn't always want that. Mm. It's, it's, this is, I think this is where there's quite a tension. Um, to read the, the Ankara Nawissa, on one hand, is very concerned about, dear sister, this is, dear sisters, this is, you know, how you should live and you must, you know, take care of yourself. Don't. It's, it, a couple of times it says, you know, you need to live according to the way that you can manage. So it, it, it is concern for, her, for the health of the anchorist. At the same time, it's really very negative about the female body in particular, the bodies in general, but the female body in particular. And that was the theological um, thinking of the time, that... Uh, women were very bodily and more inclined to sin. So the, the way for the, the anchoress to be um, <clears throat> uh, become pure and get closer to God was to deny their bodiliness. And, the, you know, there are, there are some very tough passages about how horrible the body is, um, about, you know... Uh, how that you know that that you shouldn't eat too much or eat rich food because it's close to the sexual organs which are the sinful organs you know things like that things about um, the face and the nose described as a as a, a toilet holes things like that so there it's there's a real tension going on in the Ankara about yes wanting women to to take care of themselves at the same time is saying you have to get that body under control and it's you know you're stuck with this body which is not a not it will prevent you going to god unless you getting to god unless you really uh, subdue it mm, and so. it's, it's such an interesting process because sarah at one stage is very tempted by the notion one of her predecessors lived on holy communion alone and the women who take care of her are quite worried about that. And there's, a, there's a wise woman from the village, a, a healing woman from the village, who says, you know, it's, it's really important that you have your flowers, sister, yes. that, that you bleed. It's yes. important that your body works. Yes. And there's, there's a, a great tension for Sarah, who's still very young, yes. between pursuing this holy ideal and the wise, grounded women who are coming to her for counselling, yes. but yet in many ways yes. counselling her herself. Yeah, that's right. And mm. I think for those women too, that it's, it's interesting because they're, you know, one of her maids is very impressed with the anchoress who, uh, who didn't bleed and who didn't need to eat and who had subdued her body so much. And, and, and so there, there is that idea of holiness, but... But, but because it's such a, a time of physical 
uh, it's very physical time. I think we don't kind of recognise how close to bodies and, you know, sickness and death, lack of privacy. I think that so much in the Middle Ages was, uh, was physically, just physically present all the time. Uh, so that, you know, uh, that tension goes along all the time for Sarah about denying the body and yet there is the body. There, you know, she's... You know, it's very real for her. And as you thought about this and this notion of physical mortification too, it must have occurred to you that a number of the so-called models of holiness actually represent mental imbalance, at least to modernise. And what we're describing there effectively is anorexia, Mm -hmm. certainly. We're looking at obsessive and compulsive behaviour. So the line between madness and holiness in that locked cell could be a very fine one. Ah, yes, yes, absolutely. And... Uh, for Sarah, it's it's the it's the real longing to um, well for Sarah, it's it's a mixture actually. It's a, it's a longing to be to deny her body that it will bring her closer to God. Uh, but she's also there's a kind of uh, she wants to be she wants to prove herself as a holy woman as well. And this is something that she has to come to terms with that that it, it, it's it's not actually a marathon you know it's not who can who can um, deny themselves the most and that's a you know that's a, a thing that she has to work through that she never entirely resolves and I, and I suspect that that is the, I mean that's the case for all of us in all sorts of ways isn't it we we um, we commit ourselves to something, but we have to learn our limits and our vulnerability and our humanity as well. And that's really very much at the heart of Sarah's struggle. And, of course, in the midst of this struggle to understand her own identity and who she can be as a holy woman and anchoress, in the broader picture, she's a spiritual chattel, effectively. She's like a fine prayer book. She's a prudent insurance policy for her <laughs> patron. Yes. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's her role, really, it in is. the larger yep. society, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, the, uh, the, because prayers were, uh, you know, they had almost tradable value, you know. Uh, at just around this time, um, people could buy pardons, so you could pay money to a pardoner and he would um, you know, absolve you of your sins. So even though there was this a kind of a theology that, you know, Jesus died for everybody's sins, it just gradually shifted into, into a, a, a much more of an economic transaction. And so for, for the, the Lord who, who becomes her patron, you know, he wants to ensure that he can go to, to uh, get to heaven. And so if you can have someone praying for you um, every day, that kind of builds up your, you know, builds up your stocks in heaven in a way. So it, it does that kind of, um, uh, well, it is an economy and in which he buys his health insurance or his mm. life insurance, really. Mm. And it's, yeah. it's not giving anything away to say that really at the very beginning of the book... Her patron, the, the man who is responsible for looking after her, but for whom she is this this chattel, this possession, he dies very early in the piece. Yes, and yes. That, that creates real tension for her because she has 
no control outwardly over any portion of her own life. No, that's right. Yes, yes. Once um, she becomes, and she and she speaks in terms of realizing that she is kind of the property of him and then of his son. That that she, the the care for her is transferred from the father to the son, and she says, along with his sheep and his mm. peasants and his um, his lands there's me, it all gets transferred for her. So she's, um, yeah, she, she's transferred from one to the other. Yeah, I, I, a... It's just so extraordinary, isn't it, Robin, because women outside, of course, are tradable commodities, women inside are tradable yes, commodities. Yes. So, you know, a woman, she's, she's either temptation embodied, she's a possession to beget, her, to beget heirs, she's, she's the custodian of her virgin sanctity. Her body is just never her own That's right. in that broader sense. Well, yes, and even... Um, at that, when she's enclosed, um, before she's enclosed, the bishop talks to her about the importance of remaining, that she must, she commits herself and she must remain. And, and that the reason that she's enclosed in this cell is because virginity is the highest order for women. Women were, um, they had gradations of holiness. Virgins were the highest, then widows and then married women. And so that the, the best you could be was a virgin. But uh, it was emphasised that because women were lustful and naturally kind of drawn to, to men, uh, that was simply <laughs> how they were. Women were... The, the, I mean, the medical description was that women were... Um, cool and moist and men were hot and dry and women were drawn to the male heat and dryness that's that's that was a sort of a, a just the physical nature of women so um uh you know she's she's already a, a, you know inferior to men and when she's then when she's wants to remain a virgin She's always under threat, always, always under threat from herself and from men. And the way to be certain about maintaining her virginity, there's two ways. One is to go into an anchor hold. And effectively, the only certain virgin is a dead virgin. Because otherwise, you are always in danger of losing your virginity. So the cell becomes her... Um, an enclosure for her body, and that's how the bishop speaks of it as, as her enclosure. You know, it will um, protect her from the world and mm. from men. That's well, the idea of both the tomb and the womb, isn't it? Yes, it's all. That's right. It's all within that one tiny space, and as she paces its limits, and and that leads me perhaps to ask you about this whole idea of the senses, which are tremendously important in this novel, because of course Sarah is living in a world in which the senses are at the, the finest possible pitch. The sounds that she hear, hears outside create the image of the village for her. Yes. Um, the, the, every, every sense is attuned to gleaning what information she can because she is in that limited way. Tell me about writing yes. that. Yes. Well, I, I did spend just a lot of time thinking and, and imagining, and I, I, know, I know every little space in that cell... It's only seven paces by nine, so there's not a lot to have to know. But uh, I know, I just know it so well, and I know where she is at every every moment. 
and I spend a lot of time just imagining what it would be like to have no sight and it's quite ironic because the room that I where I do my work has glass windows on two sides so it's actually very open to the world so I really had um, no outward sense of of that darkness so I had to I just imagined my way into it and and I spent a lot of time really sitting imagining if you can't see what happens you hear and you don't simply hear the normal things you you gradually become attuned to the the tiny things you know the uh, and, and become attuned to recognising the difference between different sounds. Um, you know, they say that um, uh, often um, sight-impaired people tune pianos because their sense of sound is so much so much more heightened. And, and so I, I went with that um, idea that she would hear more, but that she would also be very... She's very conscious of smells, and you know, and a village uh, is likely to be really full of smells, and plus her own cell itself. Uh, although I imagine she, that becomes part of the furniture. You just, you know, you live in a smell, and actually, you know, there are times when she does sort of begin to recognise that she's that there is smell around in her cell, uh, and and touch. Because she is there by herself and she's oh, that's all she has, the stones, you know, the straw, the, the blankets, whatever, the curtain, whatever she has, there, there's no way for that to be dispersed and, um, you know, and her to be unaware of it because it's, it's all she has, essentially. So her, so her senses are, um, are heightened and I... Yeah, that it was all it was all imagining and staying with whatever she did, staying with it, with bodily experiences of heat and cold and fear, anger, whatever she, whatever emotions she felt. I imagine she would feel that more strongly because she was um, because there was nothing else to, to to allow it to just be you know, dispersed and lost, so it, it would all be present to her. And that, that intensity of feeling, in a sense, becomes quite an important part of Sarah's journey because she sees the world, as Blake says, in, in, in a grain of sand. sand. Yes. And she comes to realise that life is an embodiment of the love of God rather than a barrier to knowing the love of God. Yes. That is the nature of the journey yes. through the book. Yes. Mm. Yes, and there's... Um, for women, and particularly for medieval uh, women who who became mystics, um, I had read quite a bit about the Minmo for doing my um, thesis, and and I was really interested in their uh, that because they were told they were bodily, they were body, men were mind. Women were um, kind of restricted by their bodies. Those women, rather than just saying, "Oh well," you know we have no access to God, said, if God made us body, then that is our way to God. And they took on that, um, that very bodiliness as, as their experience of God. So a lot of 
um, mystics had very physical, often, often erotic experiences of in prayer, you know, and they they saw that as what was given to them in order to experience God. So my sense for Sarah too is that while she she doesn't come to um, she doesn't theologize it that way. What she has in the cell is herself and her body, and that that becomes her way of, of experiencing God and recognizing. Up on the on above her altar, there's a crucifix. Christ is a body. Christ is not, you know, some just some spirit. That that what she sees and what she has committed herself to is to hang on the cross with Christ and suffer, and that's a bodily experience. Storytelling is also very important. It's a very particular significance in this world. The written word is a very precious gift. And there are a couple of documents which are extremely important to Sarah, but also her capacity to tell stories to her maids, to little Eleanor in the village. And perhaps you could talk about the significance of that. Yes. Um, Sarah, Sarah's given, when she, when she goes in, she has devotions and her rule of life. But she's given along the way a, a, the story of St Margaret to read and... She says something like, I had devotions and I had teaching about God, but I didn't have a story where people lost things and discovered things and um, found new things. And, and I, you know, it's, it's a very, um, it seems to me su- such a, a very human, very strong um, impetus towards hearing the stories of other people and uh, and going with that story and that's uh, for her she has the book but then she has the story and she tells her maids and she reads the story but as she reads the story she tells it in her own words because it's such a such a strong and real experience for her mm. um, and she um, the, the maids want to hear it and the, there's a little girl in the village who wants to hear it. And those, that, that idea of storytelling becomes crucial uh, that uh, even her confessor has to, has to learn that there's more than theology, there's more than laws, that stories matter and stories aren't simply fantasy. Stories give us life in you know, in another way, in a much more embodied way and uh, and people engage so much more directly. Mm. You know, and in many ways that's perhaps what historical fiction does is that there's, there's history and then there's the fiction that tells the history but we go to it because we... We love the story. There's a, a gorgeous interaction with Eleanor, who's a little girl from the village, and Sarah begins to teach her, using her hand, how to spell what, what the letters are. Letters, yes. And there's a real sense of sort of secrecy and privacy around this. We'd better keep this quiet, yes. Eleanor. Yes. Don't tell your mother that I'm 
teaching, teaching you how letters. to spell, teaching yes. you letters. Yes. And again, that just reflects, doesn't it, on the role of women, the, the privilege of the written word, the idea of, of class and hierarchy and gender, that, yes. that it could be a secret, tempting, dangerous thing to do in some yes. ways, to share with a little girl the knowledge of how to spell her own name. Yes. Well, she's, she's, uh, she's told she's not allowed to teach village children, so that's one of her thoughts. But she, she says, how can I have words and not answer the questions of this little girl who says, you know, what are they words? You know, is my name there? Is, are my letters there? You know, which is my letter? You know, she, she's so excited about discovering the, um, that, that the word she says for her name can be put down in these shapes. And, uh, and, and Sarah knows she's, prob she's disobeying what she should do and, and probably, you know, it would upset people in the village to know because it would disrupt, disrupt things where village people don't know how to read. But, but it's such, a, such a, a, a strong, you know, Eleanor is so drawn to it and learns straight away, really. Mm. Knows the letters, comes back, wants to learn more and... Um, uh, yeah, and she says, Sarah says, why should I have words and not Eleanor, even if she can't do anything with them? It makes more of her world to know. Robin, um, in some senses, this could quite easily have been a book about adventure in this unlikely setting. I mean, it's, it's conceivable that, you know, someone who is trapped or could escape, you could have made this more melodramatic without giving away the ending yeah, yeah. Than, than it is. And I... I wondered whether there was a sort of a temptation to make it more thrilling in an adventure-driven sense <laughs> because one, well, yes. one, that, that's often the fate yes. of historical fiction, well, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yes. And, yeah. and there, is, there is the possibility of that exists within the book. There are yep. tensions outside yep. the cell. Yep. There is lust. There is property. There is possession. There is, there is drama that happens. And you, you could have gone with I that. I could have. Why didn't you? Yes. <laughs> I'm very glad she didn't. I think she had a book without without going in that direction. I, I I was never I was never tempted. I was I was a little concerned when I to, to be honest when I began that I really wanted to write this novel and I really wanted to to explore the experience of this woman. And but there was a question in my mind about what will happen. You can't just have her praying and reading and thinking <laughs> things have to happen and I uh, when I began I didn't know what would happen so I, I had a couple of thoughts I knew she had maids I knew she had a confessor so I knew there would be interactions and something may come from that and then I, I just read you know wrote on and gradually you know as a friend said to me uh, well, don't they say all plots start with character? You know, you've got the people. So, and I did allow the, the interactions from the characters to find their way. And, you know, I've, I've read... Um, I, I, can't, I actually don't know who the writer is, but it's a very familiar thing that writers say is that sometimes writing is like being, you know, driving an old VW down a, a, a country lane where there are no lights... And your headlights, you know, VW headlights are 
notoriously bad. All you can see is kind of a few <laughs> feet in front of you. And you have to drive those few feet in order to find out what's in the next few feet. And that's, that's how it was. But I, because I was so committed to Sarah's... Um, Sarah's ex the authentic experience... I didn't ever... I was never tempted that the plot, you know, making a plot and making action would uh, would take me away from her, the authenticity of her experience. So I suppose it was staying with Sarah and what it really would be like um, just took away the temptation to mm. to have, you know... Knights in shining armour. Well, well we, won't, we won't give anything away, no, no. Uh, but, but I think we can say that nobody gallops away on a white stallion no, under true. a storm-tossed no, sky. That doesn't happen at any no, point. No, none of those. And no. you'll probably be glad at the end <laughs> that doesn't happen, in fact. Um, Robin, um, I, I see from reading your Twitter stream that you describe <laughs> yourself as an introvert. Uh, so yes. It's probably a terrible thing for me to say that to you. No, no, as no. An introvert, I am I mean. an introvert, yes. <laughs> um, but like you, in some senses, I can see the appeal of this life, of this, this sense of retreat and enclosure. And, you know, I'm too a person who likes to sometimes draw the stone across. Yes. And I just wonder what the parallels are with writing as a vocation for you with, with Sarah's life. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, I, I do think that, uh, um, for me, writing this novel particularly, uh, there was so much about the solitariness of it, the need to sit alone and still and simply be there with, with it um, and a bit of that experience of not knowing what's going on, you know, in the next few feet. Um, that's, that's very much a kind... That, that force, it at least forces me... I know different writers do it differently, but it forces me to, to stay... Um, focused and stay in the experience. So, uh, yeah, every now and then, I think, um, for a bit of health, it's it's you know, and, and a bit of mental health, it's important to get out of that space. But I find I fall into that um, enclosed life of, of my desk. Quite happily. <laughs> Quite, yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, I do know absolutely what you mean. <laughs> Tell me about the process of bringing this book to, to this state, to, to, to publication, because it's been quite a long journey, hasn't it? It has. Well, well I began it because I, I, I think I graduated with my PhD in 2002, something like that, 2002, um, so, and I had already thought about, um, you know, been thinking about when I was when I was doing all that research and actually finding uh, this academic argument really difficult to because um, I felt it so constraining and I wanted to do something else. And I realised that actually what I wanted to do was write a novel. Uh, and I kept thinking about this story. So, and I wrote a few things and then thought, oh look. This is impossible, you can't do it. It's just a woman in a cell, too hard. And I wrote bits, left it, came back to it. And then um, it was only, it was about, what, six years ago now that I, um, we moved to Murrum Bateman and I had 
the time and the space to start to write. And so she'd been, Sarah had been in my head for a long time and I, I spent about three years working on it and um, uh, got it to a point where I thought this is about the best I can do now, you know, without any other help. So I sent it off um, and to various publishers didn't, didn't get any response. So I uh, took a deep breath and, and tried for an agent, found an agent um, very quickly. Uh, and uh, then, then the hard work started. She said, right, revisions. So I did revisions. And she said, yeah, okay. More revisions. So I did more revisions. Um, and that was about pace. So uh, all about pace, got to get... Get it moving. So I had to set... <laughs> Get set, it moving. You're writing about a woman now. I know. I know. Evil England. Get that's, it moving. That's what I said. That's what I said. And, but I did have Sarah slowly getting used to used to it. Not much happened. She just got used to a few people. You know. But um, I, I... And I felt it was galloping. I know some people... <laughs> Some people say it's slow at the beginning and I think, well, you know, well, I felt a bit breathless about it, you know, when I changed the pace. So, um, and then, yeah, and then I, um, my husband and I were in England. I had just sent off the final manuscript and to my agents and they said um, that, uh, that they would get it prepared and, and send off their blurbs to publishers and... And uh, and I got a, a, a phone call saying the editor at Faber would like to, you to drop in. <laughs> and I honestly, honestly, you thought I'm, I'm I just can't. a girl from Murray Bay. This can't <laughs> be happening. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. I and, and I got there, and uh, you know the Faber offices, and they're actually they're lovely, but they're really quite tiny. And I was sitting in her office. And she said, oh, her daughter had broken her arm. She had to go and take this phone call. And I sat in this office and I looked at the shelves and there was, you know, Peter Carey and Barbara Kingsolver and um, Seamus Heaney and all these books there. And I just thought, I, I'm not here. This is completely <laughs> surreal. And then she came back and said, well, you know, I really like this novel. And she, she talked about it and I know she said very nice things. I know she'd said very nice things. But I have no idea what they were. I, I just was sitting there thinking, this is a favourite editor saying all these really nice things about my novel. It just felt very strange. Um, and then, uh, and then we there was an offer came from Australia and oh, and, and and a connection made with the US. Uh, so then that all got signed up, and then. Um, a little bidding war in Australia, mm -hmm. which was very stressful because we were in a, we were actually staying on a barge and the internet connection was <laughs> really bad. And so I get up in the morning, you know, because we're doing a 12 hour, 12 hours difference mm -hmm. or 10 hours, yeah. um, get up in the morning, first thing was to check the email and there was, um, I'd see, you know, New mail, Gabby, and then I'd see loading, and, uh, <laughs> and the title would be, you know, new offer or something. So I get that much, and then it would load and load <laughs> and load and load, and eventually we just sort of gave up and, and leapt on a train and got into the British Library and 
looked where we could actually see what was happening. So, and that was it was um, it was quite stressful. I'd always thought oh, a bidding war would be fantastic; it'd be such fun. <laughs> but it was really like oh, you know, and it happened sort of over the weekend, and it was just you know, it was really quite. Um, it's just so deliciously improbable. You're desperate for a for a functioning internet connection. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's the it's end just, of all this. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yes, yes. I'm going to turn over to questions from you in a moment. So think, think of something. If you've got something to ask, put your hand up. But I do just want to ask you one more question, Robin, and that is what, what do people tell you about how they react to, to all of this? <laughs> well, I've had, I have had, I must say, that... It has been lovely. I've had so many emails and messages and um, nearly all of them completely positive. I've had, I've had lovely emails like uh, one woman saying, I'm, I'm reading this propped up in the kitchen while I peel the potatoes. That's what good novels do. They make dinner late. Um, <laughs> and I had a, a, an email from a... Um, a friend of my children in, in, in Ireland saying, you're making me neglect my children, they're, you know, they're, they're not getting a hot meal because I'm reading this novel. Um, but I've also had the, the really lovely ones have been people saying it has helped them deal with grief in their own lives, that they have actually, it's really helped them work through some things. And that, you know, you can't ask for better than that. That, that it I think if I can write something that helps someone else in a very different situation come to terms with something and you know heal something in their life well that's that's just a gift that's you know well that's I think wonderful. that's actually one, one of the remarkable things that you've achieved with this book because that is absolutely what it does that the story of a 17 year old going into a nailed cell in a medieval church actually ends up being a story about grief and healing and love and human connection yes. and emotion and understanding oneself in the context of those one loves. Yes. That's all possible within the walls of this tiny stone cell. Yes. And, um, and that's a, a really beautiful and remarkable thing to have achieved. But look, let me now turn this over to, to you and I'm sure there will be some questions, so just pop your hand up. And um, we'll go to you. Yes, first. Oh, we've got... Sorry, we've got a microphone, so we'll get that to you. Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I was just thinking, you, you kept emphasising the idea of distance, and, and I was thinking of our world today and, you know, our Honourable Treasurer saying that if we want to get ahead, we must get a job. You know, and I, I kept thinking, job and vocation, job and vocation. Uh, with all your research and your writing, Robin, um, uh, what kind of conclusions did you draw, let's say, of vocation in that period for a, a man and a woman? The vocation of, of, a, of an anchoress and an anchorite. Uh, the, well, they both basically committed to the same thing, to be, to be um, <clears throat> enclosed. Uh, but the, obviously the, the thinking around it was quite different. As I said earlier, for a woman... To be enclosed in a cell was about retaining and protecting her virginity, so the cell became her outer skin, really. Uh, for a man, it was, it was different. Um, men weren't trying to defeat their bodies and overcome their sinfulness. Men were building on a kind of base of... Um, 
you know, at a level of connection with God already because men were men didn't have all the impediments that women had. So while women overturned their nature, men improved it. So the, the whole attitude towards... There, there would still be that, that um, making sure they denied the body and kept, the, kept themselves in some, you know, they, they didn't live in luxury, but they didn't have the pressure on them that women had to, to simply deny their nature. And men often, they were often priests and they had a cell next to the church where they could come out and uh, take mass and they sometimes travelled mm. as well. And, and some women did travel, like, some anchoresses did travel, I gather. Though there's not a lot of records, so it's hard to know. But nonetheless, what women were doing was was at its base different. So if they travelled, there was always issues of safety um, and always issues of their, you know, their, their nature. So uh, they were doing they were doing something quite quite mm. different. I haven't actually investigated mm. a lot of anchorites. <coughs> Men's bodies are heroic, <coughs> while women's bodies are things to be mastered, to yes. be you know overcome. Two quite different things. Really fascinating. Do we have another question from the floor? Um, yeah. Uh, we'll just get the microphone to you. <coughs> Sorry if I'm coughing in everybody's ear. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Robin, I really love the character of Emma, the sister, Sarah's sister, even though she was dead. <laughs> I just Thank felt you. that there was so much influence from Emma on Sarah's life. So can you just tell us something about how you came to develop Emma? And specifically, I guess, I've wondered from the beginning of the book, from from the day I picked it up the first time, whether Emma was an idea that came to you afterwards, after you first had Sarah, or whether Emma was absolutely critical to Sarah's decisions in life so anyway maybe just tell us about Emma yeah uh, <clears throat> that's a good question I, it, it actually feels so long ago now it's hard to remember quite what came when I think that Emma was always uh, Emma was always important to to Sarah uh, it was it was always integral to, to part of her integral to her thinking about entering the cell. Uh, Emma's personality developed as I wrote. Uh, and, and so Sarah's memories of her sister who's, um, you know, questions everything, whereas Sarah's much more inclined to, to do what she's told. Uh, and Emma's, Emma's just love of life a kind of gusto and her uh, you know, excitement that um, that that just developed as I wrote, and I and in some ways it was a a counter to Sarah, but she became she became much more than that. So I was hoping she wasn't simply oh Sarah's like this and Emma's really different, but kind of a um, 
Sarah's caught up with Emma and, and the fact that Sarah is so caught up with Emma says a lot about Sarah's longings and her desires, actually. I think that's why Emma was so important to her because she, she envied her in many ways, wanted to be her in lots of ways. So, yeah. I, I was also very fascinated in that relationship between the sisters in that, you know, it would be too easy to call this just the earthly and the spiritual but nonetheless, Sarah's vocation is, it's important to emphasise, a willing one. Oh, yes. And, yes. and so this is, this is not a case. Emma's, Emma's dead. We know that. Emma's dead in the book. But Sarah's not necessarily running away from things. She's not, she's not being led to something that she doesn't want or fooled into something. This, no. this is a willing choice. Yes. It's bound up in some ways with her grief and her sadness and her love for her mother and her sister. Yes. But she does this as a choice. She does. Oh, it's, yes, and, and it really was uh, very, you know, that it was quite well um, uh, guarded that that women had to had had to be making a choice for themselves. And uh, I just think that whatever choices we make, they're never entirely simple, mm-hmm. and that they're not, you know, they don't have a single strand to them. So Sarah's. Um, love for God, Sarah's commitment to being in the cell are, are caught up with a whole lot of other things in her life and I think that that is, that is simply how we, we are so uh, I'd never deny for a second that she was absolutely committed to God but there are other things at play as well and they all come into that because her sense of God was complex as well and, uh, and so Emma very easily gets gets caught into into p- part Sarah's de- decision to go into the cell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and one of the great evolutions too of the book is is Sarah's understanding of the relationship with God, in the sense that she is infatuated with God in a sense at the beginning, but it's also a love story yes. that, that grows and matures. Yes. Um, yes. Let's go to the. Yeah, <coughs> so we've got down here. Um, hello. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me about writing a book is um, the cell that she went into. Now, you've written the book over a number of years. Did you actually draw the cell or build the cell to remind you or was it always in your mind as, as words and build the picture from there? It, it, was, it was always in my mind, uh, but I, I did have... Um, <laughs> I got to a certain point where I started to wonder about uh, whether whether I was um, not quite getting... I was imagining the cell and as being a little bit, um, you know, like I might think, oh, you could fit the bed and the, and the desk and the chair and the whatever else in there. And I might have um, misrepresented it. And my, my son um, is an interior architect and he has all these very clever... Um, computer programs and so I said to him okay I've got a cell can you just draw me a plan and they can (laughs) you know these days you can make like 3D mock-ups so this was a a fair way into the to the novel but I got him just to give me the put right put down the dimensions and put in the windows and the door and everything and and it all fitted uh and there's there's one moment where uh the, the, the light comes in through the maid's door, through the maid's window, 
and lands on the altar. And I said to him, do you reckon you could just check whether that would happen? You know, like I just, just wanted to know. And so he said, okay, I, tell me where it is. And so I said, it's in, in England, in the Midlands, and it's facing, um, well, it's, it's yeah, it, it's, it's facing, I don't know what you say, it's facing, but, it, but it's aligned east-west. Mm. Uh, and so he put in, he, he put in the dates and, you know, the time of year. <laughs> and th- these programs do that. And he said, there you go. Now, just click on the time of day. And looking from above, I could see the, the, the sun moving and the shadows moving across. And right at the, the time it needed to be, the sun came in the window oh, and on spooky it was spooky. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was that was that added to it but but I have to say that in terms of imagining it I really did uh, one I pasted out in my room uh, and I did a little window for the parlor window I put that on my window so I could see the the height and the size and then I imagined from there yeah. I'd, I'd wondered myself actually whether it was a bit TARDIS-like, whether the space inside the cell was <laughs> well, expanding. No, yeah. no, no, my, my, um, my son can vouch for it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fantastic. Probably just one last question, I think, yes, here. Um, Robin, I, I couldn't put the book down. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Thank uh, you. I wanted to ask you about the addition of the garden. Uh, I thought that was... Yep. A very important development because, to me, yep. uh, it said a lot about the space that Sarah arrived in mm. towards the very end of the. I think the we 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 don't want to give away too much for the people who haven't read the book. So, um, all right. <laughs> so we'll, we've tried. We will, we're trying. Can to I avoid talk to that. you about that later? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we might just have one last okay. quick question. Sorry. just down the back there. Sorry about that. We've been we've, we've been dancing this minuet together <laughs> yes, to not give away too yeah, much. Exactly, <laughs> Robin. I was wondering whether you were inspired by the life of Hildegard von Bingen mm. when you wrote this novel. Was that some part of your inspiration? Mm-hmm. Um, no, not particularly. Um, I, you know, Hildegard is one of those like remarkable people, uh, and I didn't want. I wanted. I think what I wanted was an ordinary person in, in a, you know, struggling through her life. And what, you know, I mean, I, Hildegard was not all purity by any means, but uh, I didn't want to be too influenced by, by others. Um, there, there's also Julian of Norwich, and I mm. stayed away from Julian for the same reason. I wanted Sarah to be, you know, a, an individual and to, to make her very clearly not a not a type, but a but an individual. So while I'm I'm of course interested in you know, and I had read around the lives of mystics and nuns, so that they all sit somewhere around, but they're not they're not specific influences. They more kind of gave me the the general scenery, I suppose, in which I. Which I, in which I developed Sarah. Mm. Mm. As a, yeah. Robin, it's been wonderful <coughs> to hear you talk about this. I, 
was delighted to hear about the pace question with an enclosed medieval <laughs> nano. That was, that was the most wonderful insight into the world of publishing and editing. <laughs> so more pace, Robin, more yes, pace. Yes, yes. Uh, but it, it's, it, it's a book that packs so much thought, so much contemplation, but so much emotion at the same time. Such a rich development. And I, I loved the vision of the swallow on the cover, the idea of soaring and leaping and tumbling yep. embodies so much of Sarah's own journey. Yeah. Um, a beautiful book, and thank you very much. And thank all of you too. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.